This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. In this episode today, we begin a journey to a really unique American location to discuss a very American author. Kate Chopin was born in St. Louis, but her heritage is more associated with Louisiana than with Missouri, uh, as she is from an originally American people group, the Louisiana Creoles. Christy, I know you lived uh, a part of your life in Louisiana, and your dad's family is from Louisiana. Um, as we discuss Kate Chopin and her uh, unusual and ill-received novel, The Awakening, I think a great place to start our discussion, uh, especially for those who may not be familiar with American geography, is with the Pelican State itself. What makes Louisiana so unusual, uh, more so than the rest of the United States, and why does that matter when we read a book like The Awakening? And I'd also like to throw this little episode, or last idea in here. Uh, it's pronounced Louisiana, if you're from there. <laughs> well, there are so many things that people think about when they think of Louisiana, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louisiana distinctives. You know, if you've seen them in the movies, they are going to include Mardi Gras, crawfish bowls, jazz music, the bayous, the French Quarter of New Orleans, and don't forget the beignets. Yes, the most famous thing. <laughs> I mean, the list of cultural distinctives is long. But uh, just for a general reference, Louisiana is part of the American South. So it's a southern state. Now, that seems like it would be just like all the other southern states. And a lot of people think that all the South is the same. And, and there are things that are distinct or similar in these places, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, South Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky. There's others. <laughs> <laughs> um, after all, all these states, they seceded from the Union during the Civil War. They all had slaves uh, to one degree or another. They've had racial tensions over the last 200 years. Uh, And, of course, to bring it to more modern day, they're still deeply entrenched in some very interesting American traditions. Football, barbecue, guns, sweet tea, the Bible, a general admiration of 
good manners, which include dressing each other as yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and those kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> that is the South. And just FYI, if you're in the South, being referred to as ma'am is not an insult. No, it's a compliment. South. It is. Uh, so I remember moving down here and being frustrated that I could never find anywhere that served tea without sugar. Uh, and when they say sweet tea down here, they mean like just one step short of maple syrup. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, uh, people people do like it, and they feel strongly about it. I mean, in fact, a lot of people um, have a lot of strong feelings about this part of the United States. And some love the South. Others hate it. I mean, it's part of the United States that's historical by American standards, uh, you know, although laughably young compared to other parts of the world, and uh, has some controversy even to this very day. Oh, yes. Uh, Yet, having said that, uh, once you move here, it doesn't take you long to realize that the South is not one cohesive unit. Every state is very different. Uh, Historically and culturally, Florida was colonized by the Spanish, and they have very strong ties to to the Spanish-speaking world, especially Cuba to this very day. Virginia is the seat of government, and it's still the heart of American politics. The horse-racing people of Kentucky, uh, we see that in the book, Awakening. And then we have our cotton-growing neighbors to the south in Mississippi. I mean, there are just many cultural distinctives that made each state very unique. Uh, and, the, and the culture's deep and, and old in many ways, which brings us to the great state of Louisiana. Louisiana, especially South Louisiana, in a lot of ways has more in common with the Caribbean islands than it does in other parts of the United States. My daddy was born in Spring Hill, Louisiana, and raised in Bastrop, and that's in North Louisiana. That's far from the coast, but the people of the North still share many commonalities with their Cajun and Creole brothers of the South. I mean, I have many early memories of magnolia trees and cypress trees and bayous and shrimp gumbo. And, of course, my Uncle Lanny taking us in the middle of the night out with his coon, dog, coon dogs to go coon hunting and is chasing down raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> Southern pastime. You know, so for the record, uh, these are things you don't see in, in other parts of the United States. And I would also like to throw in one other cultural note here, too. The deeper in the south you are, the less you think the states north of you are really, truly southern states. I was at a conference one time at the University of Alabama. When I told them I was from Tennessee, they told me I was not from a southern state. Well, you know, it's all relative. But if you don't have Bayou and Gumbo, you're not in uh, Louisiana, Uh, although I think they do have raccoons in other parts of of the United States. But anyway, the whole government of Louisiana is different. Uh, They have parishes instead of counties. The law is based on French law, not on British law, and, and this affects everything. It's predominantly Catholic. It's not Protestant. That's why they have Mardi Gras. In Brazil, we call it Carnival, uh, but that Carnival or Mardi Gras is something that's celebrated in other parts of the U.S. with any kind of regularity. But what interests us for this book is the ethnic origins of the people indigenous to the region. The rural part of the state has been dominated by a group we call today the Cajuns. The Cajuns are Roman Catholic French Canadians, or at least their descendants of Roman Catholic French Canadians. True. Um, you know, they were run out of the captured French colony called Acadia in northeastern Canada. It's 
actually uh, termed the Acadian diaspora. Uh, Acadia was in the maritime provinces up on the Atlantic side near the United States state of Maine. And that part of Canada was very British, hence the obvious antagonism if you were French. (laughs) Well, that word Acadian, over time, Acadian, 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 turned to Cajun. (laughs) But in the book, The Awakening, it's still, they still refer to these people and you'll see it in, in, I think, chapters 12 to 14, something like that. She's, they still call them the Acadians. But that's one people group. We also have another distinctively Louisiana people group, and those are the Louisiana Creoles. This group of people ethnically are entirely different from the Cajuns, although they also speak French. Our author today, Kate Chopin, was a Creole, and she wrote about Louisiana Creoles. Gary, before we introduce Miss Chopin, Local Color, and her influential work, The Awakening, Let's talk a little bit about these remarkable people. Who are the Louisiana Creoles? Well, let me uh, preface by saying, uh, as Kate Chopin would be the first to admit, history is always messy. You know, (laughs) people marry, intermarry, languages get confused and muddled. So when we talk about distinctives, um, we are talking about generalities. (laughs) And if you want to uh, talk about Creole people, the first word that must come to mind is multicultural. Uh, There are Creole peoples all over the Caribbean, and Haiti is the first country that comes to mind. Um, So we need to be careful as we speak in generalities. But the first generality you will notice of the Louisiana and Creole people shows up in the first chapter of Chopin's book. Uh, And that is that they also speak the French language, except for the Louisiana Creoles. That can mean really two different actual languages. <laughs> Today, uh, and the latest stat that I saw was from like uh, May of 2020, uh, there are 1,281,300 that identify French as their native tongue. And that would be colonial French Standard French, uh, the speakers of the world would include both people groups, the Cajuns and the uh, Louisiana Creoles. But what is even more interesting than that is that the language Louisiana Creole is its own distinctive indigenous language and is not the same as Haitian Creole or Hawaiian Creole or any other form of Creole where you might want to hear that word. Goodness. I mean, meaning the Louisiana Creole, although having origins in the French language, is not French at all but its own distinct language, if that's not confusing enough. And uh, this is confusing because the Cajuns speak a dialect of French that sounds different from the French, uh, from France or Quebec, but it's still French, and French speakers can understand what they're saying, even if it sounds different than the way they might uh, pronounce things. And, you know, that's different. Creole is French-based, but has an African influence, and it's literally its own language, and French speakers cannot understand it sometimes. So today it's an endangered language. Only about 10,000 people still speak it, but it is still alive. That's crazy. Uh, And also kind of complicated and a very unique thing to say you speak a language that only 10,000 people really speak. Uh, That wasn't something I really understood when I was a teenager uh, living in Louisiana. I thought Cajun, Creole, all were just Louisianans. And since we lived in North Louisiana, I had never, I've never met anyone who speaks real Louisiana Creole. I mean, all the Creoles I came into contact with, including our French teacher, Miss Devereaux, spoke traditional French, which is what they do in Chopin's book, by the way. They don't use Louisiana Louisiana Creole in the book. All the characters speak French. 
Of course, Cajuns and Creole people have a lot in common uh, in terms of religion and even in the taste and the cuisine, but where they differ tremendously is in ethnicity and also in social class. The Cajuns are white and from Canada, but often rural and historically lower middle class. The Creoles are not white, but culturally a part of the urban elite, you know, the ruling class. They are the first multicultural people group on the American continent, and they deserve kind of a special status for that reason. Well, that is something I think is worth explaining a little bit. I mean, today to be multicultural is really cool. We honor that. But 100 years ago, when ethnic groups didn't really intermingle, being part of a multicultural group doesn't seem like you would be able to be in the upper class. That seems like that would be a, a, a real anomaly. And all I will say, the word Creole itself tips you off that there's some sort of multicultural element. I mean, it actually comes from the Portuguese word criollo, and that word itself means to be created. So we can understand that it it is something of a mixture, but how does a people group like that become, you know, the dominant class? I saw what you did there. What did I do? You worked in your multiculturalism with your Portuguese. <laughs> what it actually is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do want to point out that this is kind of a very big simplification of a couple of a hundred years of history. But in short, the Criollos were people who were born in the New World, but mostly of mixed heritage. And uh, gentlemen farmers, primarily French and Spanish, came over to the New World. And a lot of them came by way of the Caribbean um, after the slave revolt in Haiti. And they had relationships and often even second families with local people here. And uh, many were black slaves. Others were Native Americans, lots of mulattoes who also came from the, the Caribbean. And, you know, unlike mixed race people from Mississippi or Alabama, Creoles were not slaves. They were free people and they were educated. They spoke French and many rose to high positions, uh, you know, in the fields of politics and arts and culture. And they were the elite. And even many of them were slaveholders. Uh, now, I will say that uh, most chose to speak colonial French over Louisiana Creole uh, as they became more educated. Uh, you know, also over time, as we got closer to the Civil War era, being mixed race in, in and of itself got pretty complicated with the black white caste system of the South, which, you know, that's a whole nother story in and of itself. And uh, as a result, you had Creoles who were identifying as white and others who didn't. Chopin's family were white Creoles. But Regardless of all that, um, in the 1850s and through the life of Chopin until today, Creoles are a separate people group that really identify themselves as such. They are a proud group of people uh, who worship together and connect socially together and often build communities around each other. Um, they have societal behaviors and customs that set them apart. And we learn by looking at life through Edna, Pontillier's eyes uh, to have a, a culture that can be difficult for an outsider to penetrate if you really marry an insider. And so enters Miss Kate Chopin, born in 1851 to a mother who was a Creole and a father who was Irish. Now notice both Catholic. She was not born in Louisiana, but in the large Midwestern city, one we've talked about before, St. Louis. 
St. Louis at the time had a rather large Creole population by virtue that it's a city on the Mississippi and it runs, uh, it's north of New, of New Orleans. And her mom's family also, also was part of this elite class. They were old, they were distinguished. They actually called them in St. Louis the Creole aristocracy. That was the term that they used. Kate grew up speaking French as a first language, as many Creole people did. And uh, she was raised in a house that had three generations of very independent women. It was actually a, a household only of women. She received an exceptional education, was interested in what they called back then the woman question. So this gives you uh, a little bit of an indication that she's kind of a progressive family, if you want to think of it that way. So progressive, and I'll give you an example of what that meant in the 1850s or 1860s. Uh, on a trip to New Orleans, and this is scandalous, Kate Chopin learned to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did she smoke behind the high school gym or in the bathroom stalls? Uh, uh, who even knows? <laughs> but what we do know is that by age 19, she married the love of her life, another Creole, Oscar Chopin. Kate and Oscar were very compatible, and the years that she was married to him have been described by any of the biographers that I've seen as nothing but really, really happy. They lived in New Orleans at first, and then to Natchitoches Parish in the central part of Louisiana, where um, Mr. Oscar owned and operated a general store. Now, they were married for 12 years, and this is one of those details that would wipe me out if I was a woman at this time period. In those 12 years... She had five sons and two daughters. Well, they had. But. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, is, is that confirming Catholic stereotypes oh of large families goodness. of the age? I know, right? Uh, that's just a lot. And their lives were, you know, by all accounts, going very well until, and there always is an until, Oscar suffered the fate of a lot of people around the world, even to this day, who live in hot climates. He caught malaria and suddenly died. So there Kate was, alone in the middle of the interior of Louisiana with the store and all these kids. She ran it by herself for over a year, but then decided to do what lots of us would do in that same situation. She moved home, back to her hometown of St. Louis so she could be near her mother. I didn't mention it before, but I probably should have. Her father died uh, in a terrible railroad accident when she was just five, and her brother died in the Civil War. So basically, at this point, with the death of her husband, every man that had meant anything to her in her life had died. Uh, one of Kate's daughters had this to say uh, later on in life, talking about her mom. She said this, when I speak of my mom's keen sense of humor and of her habit of looking on the amusing side of everything, I don't want to give the impression of her being a joyous, for she was, on the contrary, rather a sad nature. I think the tragic death of her father early in her life, of her much-beloved brothers, the loss of her young husband and her mother, left a stamp of sadness on her which was never lost. Wow. Goodness, that is a lot of sadness. Well, it was, and it, and it took a toll. When she got back to St. Louis, uh, their family, OBGYN, or Dr. Colin Heiner, I guess that's not totally sure how you say Colbin his name. Colbin Hayer. Colbin Hayer. Uh, he was a family friend besides a doctor. He encouraged her, really talked her into studying some French writers, and for the sake of her own mental health, 
take up writing. So she took his advice and she studied Maupassant and Zola. And, and by the, and at the age of 38, a widow with six living children, she began a writing career. A career, sadly, that would only last five years. It started great. She was super popular. But then she wrote a scandalous book and was canceled. And I mean totally canceled. Five years after the publication of her scandalous book that today we call The Awakening, she had a stroke and died, which is sad, but you know the book didn't cause a stroke. Uh, but at the time of her death, Kate Chopin, as a writer, was a virtually unknown, forgotten, completely uncelebrated. Hmm. So what do you mean by canceled? I mean, that sounds like a crazy story for a, a mommy writer, especially <laughs> back in the 1890s. Well, I know it is. And when she started writing, she, like I said, she was super popular. In some ways, it reminds me of Shirley Jackson's story, honestly. She wrote short stories for magazines for money. Uh, what made her work popular, at least in part, was because she was writing about this really interesting subculture of America. People loved it. Although she was living in St. Louis, her stories were all set in Louisiana among the Creole people. This movement in American literature where authors focus on a specific region or a specific people group is what today we call local color. And she had this ability to showcase the local color of the Creole people, and that's kind of what led to her success. Well, you know, subcultures are so fascinating to me, and I'm always amazed at how many different subcultures there are. And, you know, I'm not just talking about ethnically. I mean, there are endless subcultures on this earth, and most of the time we don't even know what we're looking at. Oh, for sure. And as I look at you in, in, in your <laughs> office, I think guitar players are their own subculture. We are. <laughs> they speak their own language, have their own passions. You probably have your own foods. <laughs> All we need are good guitars. That's all it is. Uh, do I sense a bit of mockery in your voice? Maybe. Uh, but you are right. We do have a little bit of a subculture. But if you think guitars are a subculture, what do you uh, you know think of my cousin who is neck deep into Harley Davidson culture and goes to Sturgis, South Dakota every year? True. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who participate in all kinds of subcultures all over the world. And of course, we're talking in just about hobbies, and that's not, you know, actually the same thing as an actual ethnic subculture in any location. But understanding or just seeing behind the fence of someone else's experience is fun. The idea of living life vicariously through the stories of others that are so radically different or who live a very different life than you do, you know, that's one of the things I love most about reading. And the real sense of the term local color, though, as it was actually termed in the movement after the Civil War, authors were using settings from different parts of the country, and it made their feeling, their writing kind of feel romantic because people weren't familiar with these locations. The, seti the settings were realistic, fundamentally, which made it kind of a paradox. You're talking about very realistic places, but to you it felt foreign, and that was kind of the fun of it. Uh, there were works that could only be written by someone from inside the culture. That, again, is what made it realistic. Chopin was considered a local color author, basically because she is a Creole writing about the world of Louisiana Creoles. 
Well, apparently it was very well received. I mean, she got stories printed first in regional publications, but then she moved on to national publications. And um, the story of an hour, which was the only story I had ever read of hers, and I didn't know this, was published in Vogue in 1894. Yes, and of course, even to this day, that would be quite impressive. But Houghton Mifflin, the publisher that to this day publishes quite a few high school literature textbooks, actually published a collection of her stories titled Bayou Folk. That tells you just in the title <laughs> yeah. uh, that she's playing up this Louisiana connection. Uh, but that book was a success. Chopin, who kept notes on how well all of her works were doing financially, uh, and otherwise, wrote that she had seen over a hundred press notices about her book. It was written up in the Atlantic, and it was written up in the New York Times. And people loved how she used local dialects. They found the stories, and I will quote uh, the critics here: "Charming and pleasant." She was even asked to write an essay on writing for the literary journal Critic, which I thought was kind of a really insightful thing to to read about her. Uh, You know, of of course, all these things sound like a woman bound for monetary and critical success and stardom for her day. And that's what was happening. Her trajectory kept ascending. She was published in the Saturday Evening Post, and that is a big deal. Everything was moving up, up, up until, ironically, (laughs) (laughs) The Awakening. The awakening was too much, and she crashed immediately, and she crashed hard. You know, when I read these reviews from 1899, it's so interesting how strongly they reacted. You know, uh, I'm going to read a few of those reactions. Um, Her local paper, the St. Louis Daily Globe Democrat, wrote this. It is not a healthy book. If it points any particular moral or teaches any lesson of the fact it is not apparent— Uh, The Chicago Times Herald wrote, It was not necessary for a writer of so great refinement and poetic grace to enter the overworked field of sex fiction. (laughs) This is not a pleasant story. I mean, here's another one. Its disagreeable glimpses of sensuality are repellent. (laughs) This is one of the most popular artists of the day. I mean, she was not prepared for this kind of reaction. She didn't expect it. She was expecting people to see it as kind of the American version of some of the things she'd been reading in French that had been published in France, you know, without this kind of controversy. Her treatment of sexuality, you could see from those reviews, is really what got her in trouble. And maybe if her protagonist had been male, she could have gotten away with it. Maybe if she had been male, she could have gotten away with it. In fact, I'm pretty sure she would have gotten away with it because we know of other writers of her times that did. But but a woman discussing how women felt about sexuality. And let me just say this, if you haven't read the book yet. This is not a harlequin romance. It's not steamy. It's not graphic like that. So she's not talking about, you know, I don't know, vulgar things and descriptive tones. It's very polished. She shows deference in the way she expresses things. The problem wasn't in how she was treating sexual content. The problem was she was discussing how women felt about sexuality in a very realistic way. And people were not 
you know, ready to be vulnerable about intimacy and, at that level. <laughs> Especially in 1899. No! You know? uh, I tell students all the time um, that in American politics, sexual issues have always been used as a wedge uh, to to define people's positions as good or bad. And, and nothing will generate more political interest and controversy than a sex topic. And that has not changed in the American political scene in 200 years um, um, and is something our European and Asian friends have mocked us about for just about as long. And uh, we are a people committed to moralizing, even to this day. And for a long time, um, it was cloaked in religion. But now, hyperbolic moralizing, although not done in the name of faith, is really still a favorite American sport and pastime. Yes. And honestly, I guess uh, that's also been true in the world of art, besides just the world of politics as well. I mean, great art is never moralizing. Chopin knew that. Furthermore, if anyone had read that essay that I referenced earlier that that was printed in the magazine, they would have seen that Chopin, by design, does not moralize in her writings. She's not trying to. She's not trying to condemn. She's not judging. She has no interest on telling people how they should or should not behave or what is good or what is bad. She sees the role of the artist and she clearly said this, that the role of fiction is in demonstrating how we generally are as human beings. It's showcasing the human experience. It's meant to help us kind of understand ourselves. What she does in her writing by using a culture that is unfamiliar to us is to give us a safer space where we can pull back the veil, which is our own experience, and maybe we can see a little bit better who we are. Uh, let me quote her from that essay that I was talking about when she's talking about the Creole people of Louisiana. Among these people are to be found an earnestness in the acquirement and the dissemination of book learning, a clinging to the past and conventional standards, an almost Creolian sensitive, sensitiveness to criticism and a singular ignorance of or disregard of the value of highest art forms. There is a very, very big world lying not wholly in northern Indiana, nor does it lie at the antipodes either. It is human existence in its subtle, complex, true nature, stripped of the veil with which ethical and conventional standards have draped it. Well... Regardless of how she wanted to come across, uh, apparently she struck a nerve that people did not want struck. Uh, the Awakening Unsettled America. The, the book was published in April of 1899, and by August, critics were destroying it. And again, I'll use the reviewer's words, it had been deemed morbid and unwholesome and it was just reproached on a national stage and she was scorned publicly and when she submitted a new short story to the atlantic uh in november after the publication of the awakening it was returned it was rejected her own publisher the one who had published the controversial book decided to shorten its list of authors <laughs> which is code for they dropped her. And, of course, to be fair, uh, they claimed that decision had nothing to do with the problems with the reception of the awakening. Oh, I'm sure it didn't. It never does. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chopin is obviously crushed. She would write only seven more stories over the next five years, and she'd written hundreds. In 1904, when she died of a stroke, she had basically been forgotten. She was a completely forgotten writer. 
and likely would have remained forgotten. We wouldn't be talking about her at all until, ironically, the French discovered the novel in 1952. A writer by the name of Cyril Arnavon translated it into French under the title Edna. And with his translation, he had a 22-page introductory essay in, in, in his publication, and he called it a neglected masterpiece. What he liked about it had nothing to do with local color or Creole people or anything Americana. He saw in it what we see in it today psychological analysis. Yes, always a highlight, <laughs> I would point out. You know, it's so fascinating uh, that the French were discovering this in the 1950s. This is exactly the time period that psychology has shifted through, uh, you know, Freudian interpretations of Chopin's day, gone into the behaviorism after that, and eventually, uh, at this time period in history, ended up with humanistic psychology. What what is that and why does that matter? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> well, with Freud, everything is secret and we're ruled by unseen forces that we don't understand without psychoanalysis and Chopin's book came out when this was how we were looking at the world. And uh, after him came Skinner's behaviorism, which really was saying everything can be reduced to rewards and punishments. Very evolutionary. We're just animals reacting to the environment. And humanistic psychology is this third way of looking at things. And uh, it's really empathetic. And names like Carl Rogers, people like that, were looking at life with the idea that it's just plain difficult to be a human, and we need to understand this complexity. Um, they would like books that are not all black and white thinking or moralistic. And this is what's crazy to me about Chopin. She wrote in the days of Freud, but she was so far ahead of her time psychologically, nobody would get her for another 60 years. Literally two entire movements later in the field of psychology. Well, when they got her, they got her. <laughs> In 1969, a Norwegian critic by the name of Pert Sayerstead brought her out in the open in a very big way. And this is what he said. Chopin, and I quote him here, by the way, broke new ground in American literature. She was the first woman writer in her country to accept passion as a legitimate subject for serious outspoken fiction revolting against tradition and authority with a daring which we can hardly fathom today, with an uncompromising honesty and no trace of sensationalism, she undertook to give the unsparing truth about woman's submerged life. She was something of a pioneer in the amoral treatment of sexuality, of divorce, and of woman's urge for an existential authenticity. She is in many respects a modern writer, particularly in her awareness of the complexities of truth and the complications of freedom. Hmm. Finally, people were understanding what it was she was always trying to do. That's exactly what she wanted to do. Show the complexity of being human. Here's another Chopin quote. Uh, and this is what she's talked about when she was alive and as her role as a writer. She said this, the role of a writer, quote, is thou shalt not preach, thou shalt not instruct thy neighbor. Or, at one point, she quotes her great-grandmother, Carvile, who was extremely influential in her life. Uh, she used to tell Kate all the time. She would say this, One may know a great deal about people without judging them. 
God does that. <laughs> I'm so Southern. Uh, well, she was immediately resurrected, and today she is considered one of America's premier writers. What a crazy story. Well, I know, and it didn't hurt, I want to say, her reputation at all, that at this exact same time that she's being discovered in Europe, the women's movement is taking off in the United States. So finding an unsung feminist writer could not have hit at a better time of history. <laughs> yeah. uh, I thought she was a feminist writer, but you don't see her as that? Uh, well, I really don't. And that's not to say there isn't any feminism in the book. Obviously, it's about life as a woman at the turn of the century. I mean, Virginia Woolf famously argued in her essay, A Room of One's Own, that no one knew what women were thinking or feeling in the 17th century because they weren't writing. Well, you can't say that about Chopin. I and mean, then she's not in the, you know, she predate, I mean, she's after the 17th century, of course, but she was absolutely writing about what women were thinking and feeling. It just took 60 years for the world to want to listen to what she had to wow. say. I mean, if you want to talk about the particulars of the awakening, which of course we do, uh, we have to understand that we have a female protagonist. I'm not going to call her a hero because I don't really think she is a hero. I don't see anything particularly heroic about her at all. Uh, but it's a very, very honest characterization of what women feel. And honestly, it's what a lot of people feel, both men and women, uh, when they live, as we all do, within cultures of high expectations. Well, um, isn't writing about standing up to cultural norms and societal expectations? Isn't that whole idea kind of cliche? I mean, I'm surprised you find it interesting in this situation. Well, it can be cliche. I mean, you know, a lot of songs, you know, pop culture songs, you know, play off of that. Uh, it's also what a lot of teenage poetry is about, <laughs> oh appropriately. I had to read some. I know, but Chopin's book is way more complex than just you know, denouncing social expectations and the commonly accepted roles of women. Uh, in some ways, that's just the setting. This particular woman, Edna, is for sure unhappily objectified by her husband. I mean, it's very obvious. It's in the very first paragraphs of the book. But Chopin isn't necessarily moralizing against this or anything else. And the opening encounter that I'm talking about between husband and wife, we see that the wife is being objectified but they've worked out some sort of deal. I mean, and, I, and you know, and I guess the deal is I'll allow myself to be objectified, but in ch exchange, I'm getting something. I'm getting this very, very privileged life. It's not a life between these two people that has a lot of emotional intimacy, for sure. They clearly don't have a, a connection. Edna asks if her husband plans on showing up for dinner, and he basically says, I don't know. I may or I may, I may not, and it doesn't seem like Edna could care less one way or the other whether he's coming or not. But you know what? Chopin isn't condemning them. She's observing them. These are the deals. People are working out these kind of deals all over the world. We still do. She's making observations in regard to Edna and her relationship with her children as well. You know, Edna loves her children, Sort of, but it's certainly not the motherly and passionate devotion that a lot of moms feel toward their kids. It's definitely not the self-denying ideal that we're going to see expressed through a different character in the book. But again, we don't see Chopin necessarily condemning her for this. She's just observing. These are ways that people are living their lives. 
You know, there's no doubt Chopin was a progressive, and she was raised in a house of dominant women. She was a head of household. She was educated. She made money. But she also had healthy relationships with men in her life. So she's not a man-hater. At least I don't think that she comes across as one. She never remarried, but there's reason to believe that she had at least one other significant male relationship in her life after her husband's death. So, you know, portraying her as a woman who has influenced feminism in a very deliberate way, I don't think is something that Chopin intended. Uh, it, it was something that happened, uh, but she was canceled. <laughs> so she, she didn't influence anybody. <laughs> right. Well, I understand that. It's just interesting that today um, we think of her first and foremost as a feminist writer, in large part because she had sexual content in her books. And Although, as I think about the progressive woman in the 1890s, what we know about them from history is that most were not really uh, fans of indiscriminate sex. Oh, my. We're getting edgy. But I have to ask, why do you say that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to understand that this is before birth control. Uh, Sexual relationships for women meant running the very real risk of generating children, which is often a life-risking ordeal. And Kate herself had gone through that seven times in 12 years. And, you know, women were spending half of their lives pregnant. And many progressive women in this time period were not fighting for the freedom to have sex. They were fighting for the right to not have it. (laughs) They wanted the right to say no. And, you know, the goal of self-ownership was central to the 19th century feminism. And, Women's rights were about possessing a really a fully realized um, human identity. And we think of this today in terms of sexual freedom, but that's the arrogance of the present kicking in. And how do I always feel about the arrogance of the present? You think it's foolish. I, I do. <laughs> Obviously, human sexuality is a core part of the human experience. And that's likely why it's central to Chopin's story. But there are other aspects of personhood. Um, You know, women, especially educated ones, uh, they were interested in navigating uh, a sense of place in the community and uh, in the universe at large. And, you know, that involves um, all kind of things, hard things like love and connections and maternity. And that's why Edna is so complicated, because being a human is difficult. Navigating the women's fear, that's the expression that uh, the notable Chopin scholar Sandra Gilbert uh, uses when talking about, you know, the kind of things that Edna's trying to navigate. And so we all find ourselves, you know, whether you're in the mid-19th century or today, one way or another in cages, Some of the cages, you know, we make for ourselves. Some of the cages are made by our community, by our religion, by our culture, by our personalities, whatever it is. And that's where the story opens. The awakening starts with a woman in a cage. This is not to say that men do not experience cages or they can't experience awakenings because they absolutely do. But Chopin is a woman and she's speaking about women from inside the world of women. We will drop a woman named Edna, a middle child, Presbyterian, English-speaking girl from Kentucky, into the French-speaking Catholic world of elite Creole women. Edna's flawed, but she's not awful. She's flawed in the sense that we're all flawed, and Edna acts out. 
and the way that many of us have acted out in our lives, admittedly, often as children. (laughs) But for some of us, we don't experience this desire for agency until later on in our life. For Edna, it comes at the age of, in her mid-20s, and when it does, she will scandalize her world the way that acting out always does. She finds herself in a cage and decides she wants out. But then when you get out of the cage, where do you go from there? Let's read how Chopin sets this up for us in the first paragraph of her story. A green and yellow parrot, which hung in a cage outside the door, kept repeating over and over, Allez-vous on, allez-vous on, sapristi, that's all right. He could speak a little Spanish and also a language which nobody else understood unless it was the mockingbird that hung on the other side of the door, whistling his fluting notes out upon the breeze with maddening persistence. Mr. Pontellier, unable to read his newspaper with any degree of comfort, arose with an expression and an exclamation of disgust. He walked down the gallery and across the narrow bridges which connected the Lebrun cottage one with the other. He had been seated before the door of the main house. The parrot and the mockingbird were the property of Madame Lebrun, and they had the right to make all the noise they wished. Mr. Pontellier had the privilege of quitting their society when they ceased to be entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Christy does. She gives the entire story away in just the beginning, like you always claim. Well, she's doing something. I mean, she opens with a bird, a parrot. We'll talk more about this later, but birds are going to be a big deal in this book. But why a parrot? Well, what do parrots do? Well, they imitate. They talk. This parrot is in a cage, repeating something an English reader would not understand necessarily. So so what does that phrase mean? It means go away. (laughs) Go away, for God's sake. The bird is telling everyone to go away. And Mr. Pontelier pretty much ignores the bird and does actually go away when he's not entertained by it. The bird speaks a little Spanish, but also a language that no one else understands. Now, there's a lot of an intentionality here. This book begins with a bird in the cage. The book will end with a bird, but I won't tell you how we find that bird. <laughs> ah, so those 19th century writers were always using those symbols on purpose, huh? Well, they really do. And if this one is our protagonist, which we can see that uh, it is perhaps, um, she's beautiful. Our protagonist is also in a cage. And although she can talk, she cannot articulate well something that can be heard properly or understood. And so that is our starting point. I think it is. Next week, we'll join Edna and explore this beautiful setting. We'll start off in the place called Grand Isle. That's the site uh, of where the title gets his book. If you can't, uh, haven't caught it yet, she will have there an awakening. We will watch Edna awaken. But then we know from our visit with Camus, that is only step one. <laughs> What do you do then? Indeed. Now what? Well, thank you for spending time with us today. We hope you've enjoyed meeting Kate Chopin and jumping into the first paragraph of her lost but rediscovered American masterpiece, The Awakening. And if you did, please support us by sharing this episode with a friend, either by text, by Twitter, Instagram, email, 
That's how we grow. Also, if you have a favorite book you'd like us to discuss, you're always invited to connect with us again via all the ways that modern people around the world do. And check out our website at howtolovelypodcast.com. Get yourself a mug or a shirt. (laughs) There's always that. Well, peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.